All right, Jesse, last week's Oscar Pistorius and Riva Steenkamp story was such a complex and currently relevant case. What's the story this time around? A mutilated and badly burned corpse is discovered on a cold January day in Austin, Texas. The evidence eventually leads authorities to investigate the romance between a devout Southern Baptist schoolgirl turned exotic dancer and her international man of mystery. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about romantic hooks, dirty crooks, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, pretty please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. This week, we are so excited to shout out an amazing new set of patrons. Adria W., Emily L., and Mara F., Megan H., Irina M., and Heather G., Samira D., Brittany M., and Bethany D., as well as Tiffany S. Thank you guys for joining us on Patreon and joining us today for our episode this week. Last night, we had a really fun watch party with some of our patrons. We watched um, American Nightmare, which... <laughs> yeah. Fun is a loose term. It was fun with the patrons, but the documentary is horrifying. The documentary is very intense. Very intense. Highly recommend. Once we started, I could not stop. I actually ended up staying on the Zoom and watching the whole series. But yeah, I'm tired today because I stayed up too late. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really curious about how this episode is about Austin Powers. <laughs> the international man of <laughs> yeah, mystery. Yeah. Yeah. Also, it's in Austin, Texas, so that's probably where my brain went. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's jump right in so you don't have to wait too long to find out. The year was 1994, and 22-year-old Stephanie Lynn Martin was bump and grinding through her shift at the Yellow Rose Strip Club in Austin, Texas. It was a Friday night, and the place was packed. Through the haze of cigarette smoke, she could see her talented and pretty coworkers, as well as lots and lots of men. She didn't mind stripping so much, not like some of the girls did. Stephanie mostly kept her nose clean, and she made her money. Ever since she was a child, she had liked attention, and when she'd gone from a pretty little girl to a va-va-voom adult, well, she liked that kind of attention even more. <laughs> now she had limitless amounts of attention, as well as more money than a 22-year-old woman could make doing almost anything else. She liked the Yellow Rose. It was a relatively high-end place, and the clientele skewed young. She actually found a lot of the customers quite attractive. Probably to her detriment, she thought, thinking of her live-in boyfriend, a guy that she had met at work. Just then, Stephanie's eyes met the stare of a cute guy who looked to be in his 20s. He had floppy dark hair and incredible hazel eyes. That was what she noticed about him first. The stranger motioned to her to come over, and she made her way across the club. As Stephanie sat down, he asked her if she wanted a drink. She demurred, but then 
purred that she'd be happy to give him a dance. The hazel eyes never left hers, not even to travel down and look at the contours of her body. Hmm. Nah, I'd really just like to talk to you, he said, and then he slid a $50 bill across the table. Well, this is something else, Stephanie thought. She spent the better part of the next three hours with this intriguing stranger, and the whole time, he just looked at her eyes and into her face and simply listened to her talk. It would only take a few more visits for Stephanie Lynn Martin to leave her boyfriend for this new guy. Wow. Mm-hmm. And only then a few more weeks to fall completely in love. And only four months after that, the two would find themselves completely covered in blood. Now the question is, was it theirs or was it someone else's? We will be talking about a very violent, depraved, and senseless murder today. And you know, Andy, how I'm very big on the why. Yes. Why do these crimes occur? How does a loving relationship become murderous? And what happened? Well, I don't know if I can tell you the why for today. That has to be so frustrating for you. It is. I have spent countless hours researching today's case, like watching shows about it, hearing interviews uh, with the author of today's main source, uh, the book Wages of Sin by Susie Spencer. And Susie Spencer spent a lot of time with the subjects we'll be discussing today as well. And it is really perplexing. So I think at the end of the show, we'll definitely have a conversation about what exactly happened here. And I would love for you guys to pitch in wherever you listen, whether you come over on Instagram or discuss it on our Patreon page. This one is a real head scratcher. Hmm. Now that you've had a sneak peek at Stephanie, we're going to go back and we're going to talk about two young men who happen to be roommates. All right. Christopher Hatton and William Busenberg had been schoolmates back in Round Rock, Texas, which is a suburb of Austin. They were roughly the same age, and they both had troubled backgrounds. Chris had been a sweet boy whose life had fallen apart when his father passed away suddenly when Chris was only 12 years old. Oh, my God. Yeah, Chris's mom was allegedly abusive and an alcoholic, and he says that he was abused by his mother. And it had been basically his father who had been kind of keeping the family together and protecting his sons. His dad had held down two jobs and made sure that they were fed and clothed and went to school. And then in 1986, Chris's dad came down with a very severe fever. Okay. He had to be hospitalized. And his fever got to the point where he started hallucinating. And apparently he had been in the military and whatever he was hallucinating was violent. And so he started getting violent with the hospital staff because he obviously was very ill and wasn't in his right mind. So they called the police and the police had to subdue him. And I guess while they were subduing him, they knocked him out or he hit his head very badly. Mm. And he ended up passing away later that night, but they don't know if it was because of the head injury or the high fever. That's so scary. I mean, it could have been a combination of both because high fevers can affect your brain. Yes, absolutely. So all of this is very perplexing if you imagine that you're 12 years old. And I think his brother was maybe four years younger even. And it seems like your dad is what's holding the family together. And he just goes in this 
very traumatic and sudden way. Yeah. So after that, it seems like Chris's life really took a downturn. He would later describe some of his mother's acts like drinking and driving with her children in the car and getting into car wrecks and holding a loaded gun to her son's heads. Oh, my God. Yeah, there was occasions where I think his when he was a little older and he got out of the situation, his brother calling him and saying some horrible things that their mother was allegedly doing to him. So this was a very, very hard upbringing, obviously. And when he got a little older, there were physical altercations in the home because he was old enough now that he could fight back, essentially. And he started doing really poorly in school. He started basically skipping school. He kind of dropped out. He was getting in trouble with the law. He was stealing road signs and just like classic juvenile delinquent type stuff. Nothing really horrific. And his aunt and uncle were both in law enforcement in Texas because at this time, I think he was living in Alabama. That was where his family was originally from. And they managed to get custody of him. And then later on, they did also get custody of his younger brother. Thank goodness. So when he got to Round Rock, Texas, it did take a little time for him to adjust. And he had missed a bunch of school. So they got him back in school, and he really was inspired by his aunt and uncle, who were both in law enforcement, and he wanted to go into the military or law enforcement himself someday. So to that end, he ended up joining the high school ROTC, which is where he would meet his future roommate, Will, his friend, as well as his future fiance, Lisa Pace. So this was a really good time in Chris's life. He finally graduated high school at 20 years old. He did end up joining the Navy. He had a strong relationship with his girlfriend who, who later became his fiance. And it was around the time that he was graduating that his aunt and uncle got custody of his little brother whom he was very close to. So this all seemed like things are going well for Chris. In November of 1992, he got engaged to his high school sweetheart. But somewhere between getting engaged and joining the Navy and the summer of 1994, so we're talking a period of like two years here, things seemed to have gone off the rails for Chris. He had always been a very straight arrow. He didn't drink, he didn't do drugs because of his mother and his history. But eventually, it seems like he started drinking. There was something that kind of put him on this path. And I heard a couple different reasons why this might have occurred. One was because he wasn't very fulfilled in the way that he had hoped he was going to be in the Navy. He was kind of like painting the ship and swabbing the decks, and he expected to be seeing a little bit more action. Okay. The other thing was that there was a situation in which Lisa, who was still in high school at the time, because she was a couple years younger than him, like went to a party and she later confided in him after they had gotten engaged that at this party, she had ended up sleeping in the same bed as a guy, or at least that's the story she told him. But he thought there was more to the story that maybe she had cheated on him. In any case, that's kind of like the place where she points to their relationship changing a little bit and his attitude kind of starting to change. And he started drinking more and he became somebody she didn't really recognize 
as the same guy she had started dating, who was the straight arrow ROTC captain, really excited to be in the military Navy guy. Around this time, too, he got a DUI. So he had just gotten a promotion, too. And because of the DUI, he lost the promotion and he lost his Christmas leave. Oh, my God. Yeah. So Lisa was pretty sad and disappointed to not see him for Christmas as she'd expected and and disappointed in his actions that had precipitated the event. And Chris was too. But I think that instead of going inward and being like, hey, maybe I should stop drinking. A DUI is not so cool. He decided to jump the ship literally and just go AWOL. Jump off the ship. I'm not joking. I'm not making this up. He literally put his ID, some cash, and the plane ticket that he had already purchased to go home that now he wasn't able to go home in a Ziploc baggie, put it in his wetsuit, jumped off the ship, and swam to shore. How far was he from shore? I don't, I don't think it was super duper far. Okay. <laughs> then you have to be like worried about it being shallow too. I mean, there's concerns <laughs> either way. <laughs> There's a lot of concerns going on about this. It's too far out. There's sharks, you know. I feel like I would be concerned when he showed up at the airport without shoes and just in a wetsuit and was like, I'd like to get on the plane, please. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, this whole thing was not a great idea. And when he got home, Lisa told him that. So she said, "This this is bad. She was going into the Army National Guard after she graduated. So she had her own military aspirations. And she's like, this is a bad idea, dude. Like, you need to go back or you're going to get kicked out of the Navy. And this had been his dream ever since going to live with his aunt and uncle. So this was a big, big mistake. He did eventually return, but it wasn't enough. His attitude was bad. It was clear he didn't want to be there. And they did eventually dishonorably discharge him only a month after his return. So now he's this guy who doesn't have a job and his girlfriend's fiance, I mean, they were engaged, is still in high school. She's just about to graduate high school. So this is really heavy on Lisa because now her boyfriend she'd been so proud of is moving back in with her and her mom. She's just trying to finish high school so she could go into the National Guard. And... It's all of a sudden she has this like unemployed husband, essentially. So her situation was only improving as far as like her own career. She was doing really well with the National Guard. She liked the work. They did eventually move into their own apartment, but the relationship did not improve. It seemed actually like Chris was resentful that her military career was going well when he had pretty much noped out of the Navy. Nope. Yeah. He ended up getting a job delivering beer and alcohol to bars. And this only exacerbated what was beginning to look like an alcohol dependency issue. Lisa also began catching him in lies about where he had been or who he was with or what time he was coming home. And she also found a shirt from the Yellow Rose Strip Club in his drawer. Oh. Uh Uh-huh. So she asked him about it, obviously, and he said that one of his friends who worked at the booze company where he delivered alcohol to various clubs and restaurants had given it to him. Like, it wasn't his account. He didn't go to the Yellow Rose. That's like such a random freebie. It's a random freebie. It's also a strange thing 
to lie about or to keep if you're going to lie about. Just say no thank you to the free shirt if you're going to lie about going to the strip club. Yeah. So she's already getting a little suspicious about what he's up to. And there was one night where she had just really had it. Like she was over his lies. He was out partying. He wasn't coming home. She ended up tracking him down, figuring out where he was. And she was so angry, she actually slapped him in front of a bunch of people. Like her mom. Well, her mom wasn't there because they had moved out into their own place. But he was like at a party or something. So that was the final straw for him. He said, essentially, we're over. And moved out. Left Lisa. Apparently took some of her furniture. She was completely heartbroken about this. Even though she was upset and she felt lied to, she had still hoped that there was possibly some reconciliation in their future, especially if he could clean up his act. That's what she was really hoping. But as the months went by, she started to give up that hope because she found out that he had taken her ATM card and he had used it to withdraw cash at various Austin strip clubs like Sugars and, of course, the Yellow Rose. Chris had always denied being attracted to exotic dancers and had told her he would never go to a strip club, he would never date a girl who danced, and all of a sudden she has this proof that, like, obviously that's not true. Yeah. Sometimes when guys or anyone says stuff to excess, it's because they're actually fixated on it. Why do you think it's called yellow rose? Because yellow rose is usually a sign of friendship. Like when you give someone a yellow rose, it's like a friendship rose. I think it has something to do with Texas because I, I think that there's a country western song about it. Hmm. Follow the <laughs> yellow brick rose. Follow the yellow brick rose all the way to the strip club. Yeah, all the way to your pants. Exactly. So yeah, something was going down. And he was also being very cagey about his living situation. Something was going down, but something else was going up. <laughs> yes. And at this point, Chris had actually moved in with William Busenberg, but he did not want Lisa to know this because Lisa did not like Will. Oh. Yeah, they had all been at high school together. They all grew up relatively because he had moved there when he was already a teenager, but they had basically grown up together in the Round Rock area. And she found Will to be... Just terrible, I guess, would be the word terrible. Yeah. Because she said that he used racial slurs, that she had been friends with a girl that he had dated, and he was very possessive and controlling. And it was just essentially not a person that she wanted around her partner. So she did not know, I believe, at this point that they were living together because he knew that she disapproved of their friendship. So altogether, things for Chris Patton are not looking good right now. Like, he is noped out of the Navy. He's got a job that doesn't seem like it's helping his health or mental status. And he's lost his fiance. So things are not great. And he's with, living with this guy who is potentially a horrible racist. Yeah. <laughs> this is not a good situation. It's messy. Yeah. It's unclear why Chris was friends with Will, just because from everyone's account, Will wasn't super duper popular. He wasn't super social. And Chris was a good-looking guy who seemed to get along with everyone. I mean, it could have been some bonding, though, because Will also had a very traumatic childhood and upbringing. So maybe there was something he saw in Will that was like what he went through. And he wanted to be his friend and, and help him out because of that. 
So Will was the youngest of four children who had been physically abused by their father. His parents had split up, and it was a very rough situation where the parents had a very acrimonious divorce, and they literally split the family in half. I think that they were living in two different states, and some of the kids were with the mom, and I think Will was left with his dad for a little while, and then I think his, like, oldest sister moved out. So the family was very fractured, and Will ended up at 14 having a very difficult time in school. So he went through something similar to what Chris went through, where his grades were tanking, even though he was a very bright young person. And he ended up having, like, a stomach full of ulcers from the stress of his home life. Oh, my God. That's so sad. I hate it when kids have ulcers. It's just literally from stress, and it's so sad. He did eventually go to church. That's actually where he found community, which was weird for his parents because they hadn't raised him to be religious. But he was just looking for something so deeply that he ended up finding community with the Baptist church. And when he was like, I think 14 or 15, he ended up moving into the Texas Baptist Children's Home in Round Rock. And the home tried to place him with three different families, but it just never really worked out. Will had a problem with authority. He allegedly refused to follow rules. And one of his families claimed that he was a near pathological liar. Hmm. Will never really found the family that he was looking for. And I think that he was left feeling largely unloved in his life. He ended up changing his birth date so that he could join the Army National Guard when he was only 17 years old. Uh, that's not legal. No, you have to be 18. So, But they didn't know it because he had changed his documents to reflect like he had basically made himself one year older. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And that, I mean, honestly, it was just, again, he was looking for somewhere to fit in. And during his time with the National Guard, he actually did quite well. All of his commanding officers said that he never posed a problem for them at all, which is interesting given that a previous family said he had a problem with authority. He did not seem to have that problem when he was in the National Guard. And I, I think that he lived with his sister for a little while while he was in the National Guard. And then eventually he was honorably discharged in 1994, at which point he moved to Austin, Texas. And that was right around the time that Chris's life was really imploding and his relationship was ending with Lisa. And they ended up reconnecting and deciding to get an apartment together. It would be a fatal mistake for one of them. So Will and Chris moved in together in late summer of 1994. And that October, so only a few months later, one of them met Stephanie Lynn Martin while she was dancing at the Yellow Rose. So we've got three lost souls here, and it's going to be a deadly combination. So let's go back and talk about Stephanie before she landed at the Rose and get her side of what is very rapidly becoming a sordid story. Stephanie was born on June 17th, 1972. She was the third child of very loving, nice, middle-class parents who raised her in Oklahoma. She was the baby girl for real because there was two older brothers in her life. And it sounds like it was a nice way to grow up. They were described as having a Norman Rockwell-like childhood. Okay. Yes, that is how Susie Spencer described her upbringing in 
wages of sin. They seemed like a pretty nice family altogether. There is some speculation that Stephanie may have been sexually abused at some point. But this is pure speculation. This is something I heard Susie Spencer talking on an interview. She was being interviewed for a podcast, which I will put the link in our show notes if you guys want to find that interview. And she said that there was speculation about this because Stephanie behaved very sexually at a very young age, which can be an indicator of childhood sexual abuse. But we don't know any of this for sure. Stephanie did not say that she had been abused. So we don't know. But we do know that starting when she was about 12 years old, she was very sexual with her friends, her girlfriends. Even at a younger age, she wanted to play house or doctor and touch the other girls or make out with them or rub her body against them. And one of her very good friends from growing up said that there was one day, I think they were in sixth or seventh grade, where she kept trying to get her friend to check out her new underwear. She had new underwear and she wanted her to see it. And she lifted up her skirt and made her friend look and she wasn't wearing any underwear. Okay. Yeah. So there's definitely some attention-seeking behavior in the very least. Totally. I understand that. It's complete speculation. Yeah. There's no evidence that anything actually did happen to Stephanie. I mean, it's entirely possible she was just a very sexual adolescent for whatever reason. But she did end up having sex with some boy on a family camping trip. I guess he was there as a guest of her brother's. And she ended up getting pregnant at the age of 15, which, as you can imagine, in a Southern Baptist family is a big uh, no-no. I would say that's the no-no. The no-no. And Stephanie's parents did speak to Susie Spencer, the author of the book I read, Wages of Sin, and they said that they really felt like they were between a rock and a hard place with this pregnancy. She did tell them about it, and ultimately, they, with her, decided that it would be best for her to get an abortion. Okay. And this was, of course, against their religious beliefs, but her father said that even though I think at the time she had the abortion, she was about 15 or 16 years old. She had the maturity of a 12-year-old is what her father said. And he thought that it would be wrong for this person who was not very mature to become a parent. She just did not have the maturity to be a parent. And, and he said that that's why they made the difficult decision to pay for her to have an abortion. I think that they also thought that this might be a rock-bottom moment for Stephanie. like. This is the worst. This is as bad as it gets. But you survived. We're going to get through this as a family. And maybe it would be a wake-up call. Maybe she would say, wow, you know, this has been, I've been having some risky behavior and I need to clean up my act. Didn't really seem like that happened. <laughs> Stephanie did not clean up her act. In fact, she was on the drill team and somebody who was, went to high school with her was uh, talking to author Susie Spencer and said that, she went out at a pep rally, so in, in front of the entire school, and was doing high kicks with no underwear on. Uh, so everyone was getting flashed? Everyone was getting flashed. I think she got kicked off the drill team for that one. I would, yeah, I'd say. <laughs> Eventually, I think her older brothers were both out of the house at this point. Her family decided to move. I think that her father had a work opportunity, but they also thought it was a good time to maybe take her out of that environment. <sighs> They mistakenly believed that 
her best friend Roxy was maybe a bad influence on her when I was just going to say her environment, but it was actually her. <laughs> yeah. Like I think they were thought that like, oh, it's her friend who's making her bad, but it was really kind of, I think Stephanie was the bad influence on Roxy. Yeah. It must've been her friend who also got her knocked up too. <laughs> well, that would have been a feat of biology. <laughs> yes, indeed. You know, like, come on, guys. Yeah. I also think that she talks about being attracted to women, too. So I don't – I'm sure if she was vocal about that with her parents, that wasn't something that was very accepted. I think altogether they were having a challenging time parenting Stephanie, but they were – it seems like they were doing their best. There's nothing that I have read that has said that they were cruel or – overly strict. Yeah, it does seem like they're making the best choices and efforts to do what could help her in life. And it just sadly isn't working. No, it's not working. And her father later speaks to the journalist and (laughs) says, yeah, I didn't realize that we were basically out of the frying pan and into the fire because they're moving from Oklahoma to Austin, Texas, where if she's going to get in trouble in Oklahoma... She's going to find a lot easier places to get in trouble in Austin. <laughs> so she was a senior in high school and she was like out partying on 6th Street. Yeah, I know. It's just hard because it could go the other way and she could have found her network. Like her people. Yeah, like and really come into her own. The weird Austin vibe that everyone embraces. Like she could have just like really found like an artistic community or some other like friends who are more aligned with her. And and I don't know, it's sad because it could have probably gone that way. Yeah, instead she found ecstasy and LSD. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So she started going out and taking ecstasy and going dancing. And she basically just like limped through getting her diploma. And she started going to community college in Austin. So she's going to community college and she still was pretty much a wild child. So she's like going out all night and she's living at home with her parents. And finally, her dad was like, I don't need to know about this. You are now officially an adult. You graduated high school. You're going to community college. You need to move out. Get your own apartment. If you're going to be out all night, you need to get a job and you need to take care of yourself. Because I think that they had had a long road with Stephanie and they were like, you got to grow up sometime. So she actually got Roxy, her best friend from Oklahoma, to move out to Texas with her. And I believe Roxy was enrolled in college as well in Texas at this point. And the two of them moved into an apartment together. And Roxy was hostessing at Bennigan's. And I think Stephanie was working at a nursing home. And they were making minimum wage. And they were having a hard time covering all of their bills. So Stephanie said, why don't we go to a strip club and become topless dancers? We'll make a whole lot more money. I mean, they're right. And they did. There's no flaw in that logic. They were making a hell of a lot more money. And they ended up working at the Yellow Rose, which was considered one of the better, nicer strip clubs in the area. Does it still exist? I don't know. I wish you'd look it up. But it's like if you're in Boston back in the day, it's like the centerfolds, not the glass slipper. Let's just say that. I always loved the name the glass slipper more than the centerfolds, (laughs) though. It is still open, my love. It is. Are there Yelp reviews? There are Yelp reviews. It has a little bit of like a tiki plant element with lighting. It looks great, I have to say. Oh, could you get a scorpion bowl while you're getting a lap dance? Three out of five stars. I have never seen a strip club get higher than that, though, because people are always like upset about something. Yeah. Any particularly good reviews? Kathy was charged $61,000 on her card. What? Kathy, have you checked? 
the men in your life? Are you sure they didn't take your card? What's going on here, Kathy? Her brother, apparently, she's writing the review on behalf of her brother, was scammed 30K in two days. Oh, he was scammed. Is that what her brother is telling her? But there's a lot of like, people that say best place ever. Best place to party for bachelorette or bachelor party. Number one club in Austin. So it's number one club as long as you don't get charged $30,000 on your credit card. <laughs> Just use cash at a strip club. I think that's a good rule of thumb. Get cash before you go. Use cash when you're there. I think that's a great, great plan. 2024. Absolutely. So now they were working at the Yellow Rose. And so she started working there when she was 18 years old. And she would end up working there on and off for the next four years. During that time, I think it was about six months after she started working there, she did meet this guy that she had a very serious relationship with. She was living with this guy. He was a mechanical engineer. So they were together for most of her time there. And it seems like at some point she had tried to go to L.A. to become a model, but she was only being offered like adult modeling gigs. She's a very attractive young person. I know I always get a lot of shit about describing people as more attractive than they are, but she's an attractive looking girl. And when she actually went back to the Yellow Rose, which is, this happened in 1994, she was selected to be the cover girl of their calendar. Oh yeah, that's a great photo. Guys, I just sent the picture to Andy. We will definitely put something yeah. on our Instagram yeah, if amazing. I can get this photo. So she is in a lake, topless, glistening. Her hair's wet. She looks like a mermaid with a lot of 90s jewelry. Yeah. It's actually back in that chunky, big gold statement jewelry. Yeah, it's like there's like seashells or something on it, I think. Yeah. Yeah. But it's actually a great picture. So those ended up being the cover of the 1995 Yellow Rose calendar. So she's a calendar girl at this point. So she didn't really get too far as far as the modeling. That's like her big claim to fame as far as the modeling goes. By October of 1994, she's back at the Rose and she's secured this calendar gig. And that is when she meets a man who would change her life and not for the better. So Stephanie was attracted to the guy who was at the Rose because he was looking into her eyes and not at her body. This is what she said later, that it was very rare for somebody to sit down and treat her like a human. Yep, of course. And she was really interested in this person. He apparently paid her a ton of money just to talk, and he really just wanted to talk about her. He asked her how she felt about things, what she wanted to do for life, her hopes and dreams. He was just really interested in her. And honestly, I just can't think of anything that would be more attractive to a woman, especially a woman who's in this profession, than a guy who just wants to know about you and listen to you because that doesn't happen very often <laughs> in any profession, to be honest. <laughs> so she thought he was quite interesting. He also didn't divulge too much about himself. Mysterious. Yes, that made him even more mysterious. So a week after he first came in, he came in again, and this time he came in with a bunch of guys. And when she approached the table, he basically like snapped his fingers and was like, you can leave now. And like all the guys he was with just got up and walked away. So she's like, whoa, like what kind of power do you have? She thought that was impressive. And he's just like, oh, you know, they owed me a favor. Like kind of intimates that he somehow saved their lives or something. So 
Stephanie is getting more and more interested in him because he's not really saying what he does for a living and there's like this implied power or mystery around what he does. So she wants to hang out with him. She's like, can we hang out sometime? And he's like, oh, I'll give you my pager number. You can page me. (laughs) And when she pages him, he doesn't answer right away. So now she's like totally in the weeds with this guy because he's coming in to see her. He's interested in her. She knows she's hot. She knows she's got it going on. And this guy's kind of like playing hard to get and she doesn't know what his whole deal is. Finally, when she's getting off work one night, so it's the very early hours of the morning, he agrees to pick her up and take her out and they go to an all-night diner. So it's three in the morning when she finally gets out of him a little bit about his past. Okay. And he tells her that his father had been a Green Beret who had sexually abused him and that at nine years old, he had killed For the first time, but not the last. And the person he killed was his father. He had killed his father in self-defense when he was only nine years old. (sighs) Hmm. So he said after that, he was placed in a boy's home. But eventually, he was adopted by a man that he referred to as his grandfather. This man, who was his grandfather, mentor, savior was fabulously wealthy because he had invented the orthopedic hip. Okay. So he's orthopedic hip royalty. Yes. And now this grandfather figure had this orthopedic company that was worth $30 million. And Stephanie's new boyfriend is the heir to this fortune. So random. But that's not all. Oh, God. What else? What else? What else? What else? It gets better. One day, the man who invented the orthopedic hip and was worth millions of dollars happened to come across this young man sharpshooting and thought that he was a great shot and that he should go into the special forces. So he pulled some strings and this young man that Stephanie is now talking to went into the military, got into the special forces ultimately was recruited by the CIA. Oh. And he became a international assassin for the CIA. It's always the CIA. It's always the CIA. It's always people talking about being in the CIA when when you're actually in the CIA, you're not supposed to talk about being in the CIA. One of my favorite parts of the book was the end. Susie Spencer did a... (laughs) She basically did an in-conclusion. I really enjoyed it. And it's like in the author's notes, which is hilarious. She says, number one, if someone says they work for the CIA, run. If they work for the CIA, unless they're a receptionist or the like, they cannot be telling people that they work for the CIA. It's like, damn right, Susie Spencer. She's like, my advice to young women who might be getting lied to. Susie Spencer is speaking our language. She really is. So he says that he is a CIA assassin Uh and that he gets paid per hit. So this is 1995, and he says that he was getting paid $15,000 for an easy target and $25,000 for a harder job. He said he has killed countless people. He can't even remember the amount of people he's killed because he's killed so many. In fact, they're have been times that he had to kill more people than initially he thought. He was telling her about this time he was in South America and he was supposed to take out a drug dealer, but the drug dealer was having a pool party. So he had to murder a bunch of 
drug dealers who are skinny dipping in a pool. <laughs> Wait, also though, like with the CIA part set aside, if someone's telling you they've killed countless people, I think that's also a good indicator to run. <laughs> yes, yes it is. And here we enter into a different territory, which is Stephanie's weirdness. Because she didn't run. She, in fact, got very excited about the fact that he is alleging to have killed hundreds of people. That's also a red flag for this young gentleman <laughs> that when you're, you're trying to impress a lady by saying you murder people and she's not like, ooh, that's weird. If she's like, ooh, tell me more, then you also should run, sir. And he was also saying <laughs> that he just had a sixth sense. The reason why he was so good at killing is because he could always tell if somebody was sneaking up on him. So apparently he has spidey sense as well. He's Spider-Man? <laughs> it sounds like he's Spider-Man as well. So he's Spider-Man and Austin Powers at the same time. Yes. And I don't know, whoever kills people for money. <laughs> I don't think we make those people heroes. No. <laughs> he is telling her all of this. She is eating it up with a spoon. I even know what she was eating. She was having gingerbread pancakes. What the fuck is a gingerbread pancake? <laughs> I don't know, but that's what she was eating. I'm at this not meeting. okay with that. I don't <laughs> like the sound of that. So anyways, over gingerbread pancakes, she is really loving this conversation. And at that point, she pretty much decided after the second date that she was leaving her boyfriend and she was going to be with this new guy who was dangerous and sexy and mysterious. He also told Stephanie after their second date that he was a millionaire in his own right. It wasn't just Daddy Warbucks over here. He flipped properties in Austin. He drove her around and showed her the houses that he owned. And she was like, ooh, can we go in? And he's like, oh, I'm renting them out or uh, I don't have the keys on me. <laughs> he also said that he owned a villa in France and a ranch in Montana. Oh, my God. Despite all of this incredible wealth, this mystery man lived in a relatively modest apartment that he shared with a roommate. Oh, that sounds on par for international man of mystery murderer, CIA agent, and real estate mogul, <laughs> orthopedic royalty, and real estate mogul, and rancher in Montana. So he explained to her that it wasn't because he needed money, obviously. He has lots and lots of money. It's clearly a cover. <laughs> well, the, he apparently had a job at an orthopedics company that he said was part of his cover because he was really a, a CIA hitman. He said that he didn't have a roommate because he needed money. He had a roommate because the two of them had met in Somalia during Operation Desert Storm. Oh my God. And he said, quote, we both kind of helped each other out there. We saved each other's lives, essentially. So they're bonded through their military service. So Stephanie did go to his apartment. She met his roommate. She saw a framed photo of her new man in a military uniform. So to her, this was all on the up and up. She is believing what he's saying, or at least she says she is. After their fourth date, she moved out. She officially broke up with her boyfriend and technically moved in with her best friend, Roxy, who was living with her own boyfriend. But eventually, this guy did help her get her own apartment. So he was spending considerable amount of money on her. So even though he only has a modest apartment, she actually had a nicer apartment that he helped her get. He was also taking her on trips. Nothing like wild. Like they weren't going to Tahiti over here. They were going to Houston and to the Renaissance Fair and to amusement parks. 
don't bash the Ren Fair. I'm not. I was, I'm like pre-laughing because I know you love the Ren Fair. But also, no offense to Ren Fair at all, but doesn't scream like high roller. You don't know that. You haven't been yet. <laughs> you have not been to the Ren Fest with me yet. So you don't get to say that. How many turkey legs can you really high roll it out? You can spend a lot of money at Renfair. They have like really amazing, well-crafted period piece clothing. You could drop like a K on an outfit there. (laughs) I mean, I don't doubt it. I don't know if he was dropping that type of cash, but it's quite expensive. I remember my beer that I got was like $17. (laughs) Okay, so... He's definitely giving her that $30 million treatment with driving his Honda Civic to the Ren Fair. This is what's going on here. I don't know if it's a Honda Civic, but I think he actually drove a truck. (laughs) Also, no offense to Honda Civics. They're great cars. Reliable. They are. They will last 20 years. So they were going to the Ren Fair. They went to amusement parks. And he was giving her a ton of money. He was also coming in to see her while she was working and giving her $300, $500 here or there. So she thinks that he's legit. She would also later say that the sex was electric. It was amazing. And after they would have sex, they'd lie in bed together and he'd tell her stories of his travels and his many kills, which really excited her. And people would later say that Stephanie had expressed an interest in understanding what it would be like to kill someone. That even before this guy came along in her life, she had a morbid fascination with potentially watching someone die or being responsible for a death or watching the life go out of somebody's eyes. Andy, life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earnin. Earnin is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work up to $100 per day, or up to $750 per pay period. Just download the Earnin app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to $100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. Jesse, there are so many times over the last couple of months that I've thought about where Earnin could be so useful. Last minute travel, holiday gifts, but somehow everything in life costs money. Oh my gosh, absolutely. Like finding out that uh, my kids have outgrown their snowsuits or maybe a super special trip just to see you for your birthday coming up. Exactly. So exciting. And that's to say nothing of all of the little things in life, a trip to Target, a special little night out with you and your loved one, a gift for a friend, whatever it might be that just can't wait till you get paid next. As we always say, Earnin is just a product that makes sense for so many people. Make Earnin a part of your financial routine and join Earnin's over three and a half million customers who say things like, when I think about Earnin, I think about financial stability, security. It gives me a lot of peace of mind. Download Earnin today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type in Love Murder under podcast. When you sign up, it'll really help the show. Love Murder under podcast. Subject to your available earnings, location, daily max, and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a small business entrepreneur like Andy 
or part of a huge enterprise, Shopify is the only tool you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling tie-dyed pillowcases from Shopify's in-person POS system or offering chic organic olive oil on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, or of course, cool vintage finds like me, Shopify has you covered. Yes, I mean, you guys have heard us talk about Shopify all the time, but if this is your first time hearing about Shopify, Andy has been a user for a very long time. Yeah, it's going on seven years that I've been using it for my online and in-person store, Ririku, and it is just so beneficial in so many ways, and we're so excited that we were able to implement it for Love Murder's merch store at the end of last year. It's made everything so much easier. Absolutely. We've totally re-architected our website around Shopify to have a much better experience for all of you lovers, and honestly, it was so much easier for us. Yes, and Jesse, we're in really good company. Did you know that Shopify actually powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? And Shopify's truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Ooh, darn, look at us. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lovemurder, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lovemurder to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash lovemurder. So we don't know if this is something she really means. Is this another attention-seeking thing to say to get people to go, whoa? Like, what are you talking about? Or did she really want to kill someone? Yeah, and I feel like they were both kind of saying these extreme things. So it was almost probably like a... Yeah, they're like ratcheting it up yes. together. Yeah. And they're having a ton of sex. And they're falling in love with each other. And they're getting all like true romance over here. Like, how far can you go? And it's us against the world. And we're so bad together. But eventually, this guy started running out of money. He starts running out of money. All of a sudden, he needs to borrow money from her. He's borrowing money from her friends. So Roxy said that she had had it with the whole situation. This guy coming around, he was bragging about killing people. Roxy thought he was full of shit the whole time. And eventually, on New Year's, when Stephanie came to her and said, hey, can we borrow some money because my guy doesn't have any. She was like, oh, really, Mr. CIA hitman, going to be a millionaire, doesn't have any money? Are you kidding me? And Stephanie was defending him. And Roxy was like, this guy is bad news. He's creepy. I do not like him. And I feel like this is going to go very poorly for you. I really do. And so as long as he is in your life, I do not want you to come around here. Do not bring him here. He's not welcome in my home. I really want you to get out of this relationship. But Stephanie was in with this guy, and she said no. And Roxy even said to her boyfriend the last time she saw Stephanie that she was worried for Stephanie, that she was afraid that he was going to get her into some sort of trouble. And she said, quote, if Stephanie doesn't get away from him, I'm going to see her on the news for killing somebody or something crazy like that. He is going to end up killing someone and dragging her along with him. And she's going to be on the news, is what she said to her boyfriend. 
I cannot believe that she said that out loud to her boyfriend. I mean, that's a thing that you should not have to feel about your best friend's boyfriend or worrying about your best friend. And the thing is, Roxy was not wrong. On New Year's Day, 1995, Stephanie's boyfriend told her that he had proof that his roommate had stolen a certified check or a cashier's check that had been worth several thousand dollars. And he said that this was the problem. This is why he didn't have any money was because his good-for-nothing roommate was stealing all of his money. And that's why he couldn't spend any money on her. And together, Stephanie and this man decided that the roommate had to die. On Wednesday, January 11th, 1995, a young corrections officer with the Travis County Sheriff's Office and his three-year-old son were looking for a good place to camp. So it's obviously mild weather even in January in Austin, Texas. And they were on the shores of Lake Travis where there was a park where you could go and and go to a campsite that had little fire pit and an area where you could pitch your tent. And this was where they were going and looking to see where they were going to set up for this bonding activity between a young father and his three-year-old son. When they came across a numbered campsite that had something in the fire pit, the father could see from his truck that there was something that looked like a mannequin lying in the fire ring. And unfortunately, the three-year-old saw it as well. And he told his three-year-old to stay in the car. And he got a little bit closer. And unfortunately, it was not a mannequin. He realized very quickly that this had once been a human. It was a very badly burned white male corpse. And he could see that the area where this individual's head was supposed to be was basically burned black. So the head's almost burned off. And that somebody had cut the hands off this person. What? They had obviously tried to burn the corpse. So it was partially burned. And it looks like somebody had cut the hands off because the skin around the hands or where the hands should have been was very jagged and torn. Oh, that made me eh, a little bit. I know. So he gets back in his vehicle to find a park ranger. And when they finally flag down a park ranger... This poor three-year-old is very upset. The father is trying to tell the park ranger where to go to check out this human body. And the park ranger doesn't believe him at first. He's like, look, it's probably just a dead deer. You would not believe the amount of times people think that they see a dead body. Do not worry. It's not a dead body. It's just a dead deer. And the little kid is crying and he's saying, I saw his leg hair. I saw the hair on the body. Like the little kid, the three-year-old. I know. It's so sad. It's really sad. And the father was essentially like, I'm in law enforcement, dude. It's a dead body. Yeah. How about you stop gaslighting me? Yeah. So the park ranger went. He checked out the scene and he was like, holy shit, I have to call the police, which he did at that point. And this is like the sun is going down. It's getting late. The poor father is like, I know you want me to stay here until the police come, but I have got to get my kid home. And 
at first, they were actually even looking at the poor dad who discovered the body because he ended up taking off because his kid was so upset. He's like, I am not going to be waiting around here. He was like, look, you'll find me in the park somewhere. And then they could not find him in the park. And they eventually, like, did track him down. They originally thought that maybe he had something to do with it because he had fled the scene. When really, if any of you guys have a three-year-old out there, you know when you got to go, you got to go. Your kid is going to go off, especially if your child has just been traumatized at three years old. You're going to leave. You're going to say, I don't care. I'm going. So he obviously had nothing to do with this, but they did initially suspect him. Wow. Yeah. So the detectives arrived and they are trying to preserve the scene as best they can because the sun's going down. And at first, they're wondering whether this was the work of some sort of ritualistic serial killer because the body wasn't even hidden. It's in a fire pit at a numbered campsite. And it seemed almost like the body had been like splayed out and the like where the hands should have been are kind of reaching up. Okay. So they're like, is this, did somebody purposely like place this person here? And who is this person? They found out when they started going through the scene that the head was still attached to the corpse. It just looked like part of it was missing. And it had also been badly burned. They did find a hacksaw underneath the body with the burned hands. With the burned hands. So it wasn't like they were trying to take them away for identification purposes. Yeah. So that's another reason why they're thinking, is this something ritualistic? Because if it was just like some sort of mafia execution and they were trying to get rid of his face and his hands, they wouldn't leave the hands at the scene. So they've got the hands underneath him, the hacksaw underneath him, and his body. And then they also cased the area and they found a trash barrel not too far from this campsite that had a white comforter and a military-style sleeping bag that were both completely drenched in blood. Okay. Obviously was transported in that. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what I was going to say. So they take all this evidence. They obviously remove the body to go to the medical examiner's office. And when they're examining the comforter and the sleeping bag later, they realize that there's a name and a military identification number written into the sleeping bag. Oh, my God. It said Hatton 9153. And they soon discovered that Christopher Hatton once was in the Navy and had gone AWOL and then been discharged, was also missing from his job at the beverage company. So it was indeed Christopher Hatton whose life ended in that horrible way. After befriending Will. After befriending Will Busenberg, whom everyone had warned Chris against, especially his ex-fiancee, Lisa, had not wanted him to be around this Will. And therefore, now you guys know that Will was the one who was romancing Stephanie at the Yellow Rose, even though it sounds like both men would go there together. Chris liked going to the strip club as well, as we know, because he was using his ex-fiancee's ATM card there. But he was not dating anyone 
and to my knowledge, wasn't really seeing anyone at the time of his death. Will, by the way, really, he was working at an orthopedics company, but he was not the heir to the fortune. He instead had a, a, I think it was a minimum wage job polishing the orthopedics. That was the job that he had that he told her was a cover because he even brought her to his company Christmas party and was like, oh, all these people don't know I'm really a CIA hitman and this is just my cover, which is just so wild to me. Just so, it's like pathological lying. Yes. And that's probably your hint because did you think it was Will? When I was describing the guy she was with, I mean, it could have gone either way. No, I thought it could have gone either way. Yeah, because there were so many kind of erratic seeming actions that happened throughout Christopher's adolescent and like young adult life. So it seems like that could have definitely been like a path that he went down. But I don't know. It's like... It sounds like they both had kind of lied because Chris had played along with... Will's lies that he was telling Stephanie and he had kind of said that he was a Navy SEAL himself. He had never been a Navy SEAL and that they had been deployed together. And it sounds like it maybe was like what they used when they went out to meet girls at bars or something. Exactly. It was just one of those things. And then Will ended up seriously dating Stephanie. So they had to keep the ruse going. Oh, my goodness. Maybe that's part of why it happened. Is because of, like, Will was trying to impress Stephanie? No, like, when you were saying that, like, we don't know why it happened, like, maybe there was some form of Will being concerned about the ruse being exposed to Stephanie because Chris was the only other person who knew that all of this was untrue. I think that that is potentially part of it. I think that Will maybe did not anticipate Stephanie's level of interest in murdering Yeah, as well, that he thought she'd be titillated but a little scared yeah yeah yeah. normal feelings (laughs) yeah the normal feelings when you are told that somebody you know and love has killed multiple people it's fascination and fear yeah and I think that she began putting him in a position where she was saying I want to be there when you do a hit I want to see what you do and he obviously had never killed anyone so I think that he was committing to these lies like you're saying And Chris did pose a problem as far as exposing his lies about the money. The fact is that Will was spending all his money on Stephanie, so he also wasn't paying rent. And his, Chris's best friends, he was like actually going over to his best friend's house. And I think his best friend still lived with his parents because the family was very involved with Chris and they loved him. They said he was a great kid. And he had been complaining about Will, saying that Will wasn't paying the rent, that he had this exotic dancer girlfriend, and she was seemed like she was bad news, and he wasn't very comfortable around them anymore, and he was going to have to ask Will to leave. Could you imagine being roommates with someone who's, like, trying to figure out how they're going to murder you? Oh, no. I mean, going up to that point, too, it had to be so insufferable. I I just also think that this was very, all very confusing to Chris because he was considered more of the alpha male in this relationship. He was the one people were usually attracted to. He was the one that seemed like, at least for a while, he had had a brighter future. People were more attracted to Chris. And it seems like he's losing any sort of relationship, friendship, or control that he had 
over Will during this relationship, which is why I think he wasn't very fond of Stephanie because he was probably chalking it up to her influence. Yeah. Okay. So the police used this ID number and Chris's last name to obviously find him. They found out where he'd been living and they talked to his landlord. And apparently Chris had also talked to his landlord because Will wasn't paying his part of the rent. And so he was asking the landlord if maybe he could move to a smaller unit and just live by himself or if it was necessary for him to kick his roommate out and find somebody else to live with him. And she believed that he was going to get a new roommate. That was what was going on. But she was also aware that there was some issues between the two roommates. She gave them permission to search her apartment because she owned the building. And they found what was very clearly a hastily cleaned murder scene. The police would later say that it was when they actually did the luminol testing, it was one of the worst and bloodiest scenes that they had ever seen. It was clear that something had happened in Chris's room. There was still skull fragments with hair attached on his headboard. So they believed, and this is also in concert with the findings from the autopsy, that somebody had taken a shotgun in essentially blown part of his face off, like that his head had exploded. It must have been a very close range shot Okay, from like somewhere around the nose to the top of his head. And then after that, they could tell from the luminol that they had, someone had at least, dragged him into the bathroom. And it looks like there had been considerable blood lost in the bathtub. So they were thinking, is this when they're cutting off the hands? Are they just draining him? What is going on here? There was also cleaning products. It was clear that somebody had tried to cover this up. Now they've already heard from the landlord. They've heard from friends of Chris's. They have talked to Lisa, who says that Will Busenberg is a dangerous person. And they know that they're looking for Will. And so they ended up setting up surveillance, essentially, to see if he was going to come back to the scene, which he did. They caught him and Stephanie trying to reenter the apartment. And the two of them acted like they were completely shocked that their roommate had been murdered. This was all somehow very shocking to them. Who else would have been in the apartment? Yeah. And I think that's what happened. So there was a, a protocol mishap where for some reason, the two of them were allowed to sit in a cruiser alone together, which of course allowed them to get a story straight. Corroborate. Yeah. Yeah. But then when they got down to the station, they're separated and they're being interrogated. And they are saying, we know it was you. We know that you stole his credit card. They had apparently gone to K Jewelers and bought her some jewelry on Christopher Hatton's credit card. Stop it. That's sick. It was really sad, too, because I know that Christopher's loved ones, like the credit card company, was trying to get money from them. And they're like, you want us to pay this credit card bill that the murderer of our nephew slash child, because they basically raised him, you want us to pay the K-Jewelers bill. 
are you kidding me? Horrifying. Yeah. So they're like, look, we know that you're caught. And at that point, Stephanie says, okay, you're right. But it wasn't Will. It was me. I killed Chris because I was confronting him about stealing from Will. And he got very violent and he attempted to rape me. And then I I knew that Will kept a gun in the house and I got it and I had to kill him in self-defense to get him to stop raping me. This is, of course, a lie. And I guess Chris had also told his best friend and their family that he was also uncomfortable with Stephanie because he felt like she was trying to make moves on him. And that made him feel very weird. Yeah. So I don't know if she tried to set him up to try to get him to make a move on her so that she could inflame Will to make a move like her CIA hitman boyfriend would get jealous because one of her friends said that it seemed like sometimes she would try to make an issue. Like if they were out, she'd be like, well, that guy's looking at me or he just touched me or like she wanted there to be a conflict. Yeah, rise out of him. So she could maybe see him in action. Maybe he'd get so mad he'd actually kill somebody and she'd be there for it. And that was exciting to her. Yeah, with his bare hands like Nick Cage. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) Not that I want to bring Nick Cage into this. I know. Don't bring Nick Cage into the story. Although I do have to say that's like we have the first Nick Cage we've had in a while. That's been the longest we've gone without a Nick Cage reference. Yeah, remember his hands were weapons. Yes. Is that um? I think it's Con Air, right? Con Air, and I've talked about it on air before about how I was in that bar in Saratoga. And Nathaniel was listening to the guy on the other side of me tell me tell me the exact Con Air story. That guy could have been a murderer. <laughs> he was clearly pathologically lying. Clearly. Oh, my gosh. That's the funniest thing to pick up girls with, the storyline of Con Air. Yeah, the plotline of Con Air. So she says he it was just self-defense. They don't believe this, obviously. And she said, Will wasn't there. I don't want him to be a part of this. And her parents get wind of this. Now, that was a hard day for her parents because they found out that she was not working at a nursing home. She was working at a strip club. She had a boyfriend who claimed to be a hitman, and she had just murdered somebody. As well as, if they believe her story, she was also raped. I mean, these are not things that you want to hear about your child all at once. And after self-defense murder, then they cut off his hands and took his body to a different location and burned the remains. Yes. I mean, that's why the cops did not believe them because they said, well, why didn't you just call the police if he was attacking you? If this was truly self-defense, why did you then try to take his body to a remote location, try to burn the body, and chop off his hands? Yeah. None of this is tracking, (laughs) ma'am. As soon as her parents get wind of this because she calls them from jail after she's arrested, they're both arrested for Chris's murder. They got her a very good lawyer. So she lawyers up. Will has no money. He's destitute. So she's got a a top-of-the-line defense attorney, and he has a public defender, which is nothing wrong with public defenders. It's just that there's a disparity in what their resources are at this point because by all accounts, Stephanie had a very well-off and relatively well-to-do family that was still supporting her through this. And It seems like Will was largely alone. Yeah. Once her attorney starts talking to her and they're going to have her do a polygraph, her story changes. 
Now she says that, yeah, the rape story was not true. Will did it. Will was angry that Chris was stealing from him and he's killed people before because she is still presenting like she 100% believes that he is a CIA hitman. Does she though? We don't know. It seems like where Susie Spencer lands on this and where the experts who talk about the case land on it is that she wanted to believe it. I think that's like a great in conclusion on that situation. That's all <laughs> yes. we can do. Yeah. It's she wanted to believe it. She thought it was thrilling. She thought it was exciting. And it made her feel like she was different or special or interesting in some way to have this type of boyfriend. So she says she believed it. She thinks she tries to come off as like, I was so naive. Her parents really, again, this is the kind of like going back to like, oh, Roxy is the one who's getting her in trouble. They really are believing that she was just this naive and that she got pulled into this because of a bad guy who lied to her and she believed everything. But they said this is a girl who has never shot a gun. She wouldn't know what to do. She's never been hunting. This is not some person. Like, they didn't even believe the rape story, her parents, because they said that they couldn't imagine her successfully killing a guy even if he was raping her with a gun because she doesn't know how to fire a gun. <sighs> so they now are like, please just tell us the truth. And this is when she comes forward to tell this new version of the story is that she says, you know, I talked to my parents, I talked to my attorney, and I was just trying to protect Will because Will had also told her that he had been in some sort of chemical warfare strike and he was very ill. And he probably wasn't going to live beyond five to 10 years because of what these chemicals had permanently done to his body. And so he would not make it in prison due to his disease and condition. And when they were sitting in the back of that cruiser, he said, you should tell them that it was self Chris raped you. And it was self-defense because you'll probably get away with that. You're a good-looking girl. Yeah, there's been so many stories where that's happened, where the guy asks the girl to roll for them. Yeah. Which, like, obviously she's involved, but, like, there's so many situations I feel like we've covered where that's happened. Yes, absolutely. So her story is that he wanted her to take the fall, but she was not actually even there when he killed Chris. She said she was out in the truck and that... They had been trying to kill him for days already, and it wasn't happening. And it seems like Will took Chris's life in his own hands when he decided that he had had enough and he shot him. She said that she was a part of this murder plot. She just didn't actually shoot Chris. She said that they had first tried to kill him by going and getting Unisom and over-the-counter sleeping pills at the pharmacy and crushing them up and putting them in his drinks. Okay. That's, like, safe for pregnant women. <laughs> yeah. That was how I survived my pregnancy. <laughs> Shockingly, it didn't work. He just falls asleep. He does not die. She said that they were trying to make it look like a suicide, so they were trying to dose him with sleeping pills in his whiskey. Didn't work. She said that next they tried to put rat poison in his burrito and I think he just stopped eating it because that's what you would do if you were eating a burrito and it tasted like rat poison. You would say, I think this burrito is bad and you would throw it away. 
I'm going to leave a very poor <laughs> Yelp review for this uh, taqueria burrito <laughs> that tastes like rat poison. That is, it's like I did not ask for a side of rat poison <laughs> in my burrito. No, thank you. So she said that they had tried to kill him because they wanted to recoup this money that he had stolen. So at first she's saying like, well, at first when we were going to give him the sleeping pills, we just basically wanted to knock him out so we could find the money that he had taken from Will. Yeah. And then, okay, well, maybe, yeah, maybe we did want him to die. But I didn't think he was going to shoot him. The gun never came into play, she said. So Stephanie said that she didn't expect Will to shoot him. But she did, in fact, help him move the body. They did drain his body in the bathtub. That's why there was so much blood evidence present there. And it had been his idea of where they were going. This was a place that he had been before. And she was driving and he was telling her how to get there. And it seemed like they thought that this body was just going to disappear, like that they would be able to have a campfire and it would just in a matter of hours just poof turn into dust apparently and that wasn't happening so at that point she said will made her remove his hands which this whole thing is ridiculous because obviously they leave the hands there but also even though his head had been blown off his teeth were still in his head they were able to identify chris through his dental records also they left the bean bag in the trash or not the, bean the bag. sleeping bag the sleeping, the sleeping bag. bag yeah they left the sleeping bag with in the trash his name on it so she said that she felt like he had made her cut the hands off because he had done the actual killing and if she was the one who took the hacksaw to chris's body it made her more culpable more part of it more deeply involved i guess that's her theory on why he was forcing her to do this. It was also her first tip-off, I would imagine, that her boyfriend was not actually a CIA hitman based on the fact that his best idea on how to kill his roommate is Unisom. And then he doesn't have any idea of how to dispose of this body he can't even bear to do half of the things that they're doing. Apparently, he was getting very sick. Like He was very queasy. He threw up. It seems like Will might have had some regrets about his actions. Stephanie, maybe not so much. She seemed to be handling everything very well. And Susie Spencer did end up interviewing her quite extensively. And she said something to Susie Spencer about how at first it was really hard to find the spot with the hacksaw. But then once she found it and she got into a groove, it was like butter. <sighs> I mean, this is how she's describing dismembering a human being whose life she contributed to the ending. Yes. Yeah. They tell Will, she's saying it's all you. But it's not if you cut off his hands. Yeah. So they're saying to Will and his attorney, your only chance to not get the death penalty is to roll on her first, which is exactly what he did. So they were both negotiating plea deals to see who was going to flip on who. And Will won. He came out on top. So he made a deal for 40 years. 
that he would testify against Stephanie. And his story is that Stephanie was the one holding the gun and that she was the one who blew Chris's head off. They also talked to some of Stephanie's friends, and one of Stephanie's friends had this to say. This was this poor girl was like her community college study partner, and she was filling them in a little bit about their relationship because they're trying to parse through who actually was the killer in this case, although you're completely right, Andy, that it doesn't matter. They both are up to their neck in all of this, yeah. In the police interview, this is what her friend had to say. Stephanie was always excited when she would tell me about Will's adventures he had working for the CIA. She would tell me the same stories that he had supposedly relayed to her about killing people. She told me that she wanted to go along with Will when he did something local, a killing. And she told me, I want to pull the trigger. Those were her exact words. Yes, I thought she was joking because she was always laughing when she talked about Will and all the people he had supposedly killed. Somewhere during this time frame, Stephanie started to tell me that Chris was stealing money from Will. She told me that Will would give Chris money to pay the rent or utility bills and Chris would spend it on something else instead and then come back and tell Will about it, laughing all the while. She told me that Chris was irresponsible and could not keep a job. And Stephanie began telling her friend that Chris should be put out of his misery. Oh, my God. So the detective was like, is that an exact quote? And she said, yes. She told me that he didn't deserve to live. He was expendable. And this girl had met Chris and really liked him. And she was like, you're sick and you need to get, if this is true, if Chris is really depressed, you need to get him help. You don't need to kill him. Yeah, that's wild. Yes. And when she brought it up, I guess Stephanie and Will said, oh, we will. Like, wink, wink. We'll get him help. And she finally said that they were going to sit down and have a talk with Chris. And that was the last she heard about the situation until she found out. Oh, my God. Sickening. That they had killed him. So really, it could go either way here. And it kind of doesn't matter because they're both murderers in my book as far as this goes because they both contributed to the situation. They ramped each other up. And does law enforcement feel that way too? Yes. I mean, they want to nail her. And it's not looking good for her as far as what he wants to say about her. There's all of these people willing to come forward and say that she had fantasies about murdering somebody or seeing them die. It doesn't help that in general, not Austin isn't conservative, but like in general, Texas is conservative and some people might not look kindly upon her job. So at that point, the defense attorney is like, you need to also take a deal because trial is probably not going to go so great for you. So she did and she ended up getting 50 years. So they are both Still in prison, it looks like. It does look like they have each come up for parole before and not gotten it. Technically, their release dates are 2035 for Will and 2045 for Stephanie. Wait, that's crazy that Will's is shorter. Because he ruled first. He got the better deal. That is wild. Yep. And he refused to talk to Susie Spencer. So she did not actually interview him. And it's interesting because she's talking about it in this interview where she does talk about Stephanie being taken in by Will. But on the same token, as far as who she thinks is ultimately responsible, she seems to be landing on Stephanie. 
because she said that when she was doing these interviews with her for the book, she didn't really seem to have remorse. When she's talking about what they did, she's just very, I don't know, she's laughing, she's chatty, she's, she doesn't seem to have any sort of awareness of what she did. Yeah, but she didn't interview Will at all. So they could both be like that. Yeah, I think it's interesting because it's like kind of like when I think the Abraham Lincoln quote or something, there's a quote about how you should like just keep your mouth shut because people will actually think the best of you rather than the worst. Like, uh, but if you you talk too much, then they're going to find out or they're going to take different meaning from what you're saying. And it seems like Susie Spencer got the idea that she still wanted fame. She still wanted to be well known that she was sending her attractive photos to use in the book. She wanted her picture in the book. And that she was looking at this like an opportunity and she was happy to chat about this for the notoriety. She was still thrill-seeking, attention-seeking versus she had much more, I guess, respect. I mean, I'm using that word loosely, very loosely here for Will because he refused to do any press about this. He doesn't want to talk about it. And any sources she had about Will's state of mind is that it does seem like somewhere along the way, he did have remorse about killing the man that he had described as his best friend. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, he hasn't been paroled yet. So she wasn't supposed to, I don't think either of them were allowed to appeal as part of their plea deals. And Susie Spencer said the last that she heard from Stephanie, who wanted to be in touch and wanted her to visit and wanted to chat all about this, was when Stephanie asked Susie to write something in support of her appeal. And Susie Spencer was like, yeah, good luck with that one, and did not respond to the request and has not heard from her since because she said that's part of your plea deal that you don't get to appeal and I'm not going to be part of it. Wow. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty gnarly. It's a pretty crazy case. I think that Will might have done it. If that was, my gut instinct would be Will was put in a position where he was madly in love with this girl. He felt unloved his entire life. He felt unworthy. And he had this low-paying job polishing orthopedics, low on the corporate ladder. And she was beautiful and interesting. He thought it was fascinating that she was an exotic dancer. He really thought that's like getting a supermodel to him, basically. And he was willing to do anything to keep her. That was kind of where Susie Spencer landed on it. She didn't necessarily know if he was the one who pulled the trigger. Maybe he let her pull the trigger. But he was in it insofar as he had let it go that far and maybe even pulled the trigger himself because he had to indulge her fantasy and maintain his lies. And he was willing to sacrifice his best friend to that end. Yeah. In conclusion, when somebody tells you that they are a CIA agent, do not believe them. Do not believe them. It's the red flag of all red flags. And also if they are the heir to an orthopedic legacy. Fortune, yes. And own a farm and are a secret agent and have murdered hundreds of people (laughs) and people owe them favors and also was in Desert Storm, then maybe (laughs) also run. Also, if they're fabulously wealthy, they're not going to have a roommate, guys. No. I got to tell you that too. They're not. Period. Do not believe a man who has a roommate or woman 
who also says they're secretly wealthy. Yeah. <laughs> Just don't. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one murders their best friend. <sighs> Sorry, Andy. <laughs> Bye, guys. Bye.